They think with us today about the mystery of pain and about the last thing that Amy Carmichael wanted for herself. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard and not be satisfied with just a little shallow religion. In this series, as we continue in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today, we continue our extended series on the life of Amy Carmichael. We'll also hear from artist and speaker Margaret Ashmore, and uh, she'll talk about the first time she heard Elizabeth and about what Elizabeth pointed her to. Also, we'll hear a comment from Elizabeth later about how to come up with new programs. Right now, though, it's part 21 in the 24-part series on the life of Amy Carmichael as we think about a sovereign God and a woman's pain and about a town's ironic nickname. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about a sovereign God and a woman's pain. I've been telling you the story of an Irish missionary to India named Amy Carmichael, author of 40 books, founder of a remarkable work for children called Donavur Fellowship, which is still going strong. Amy Carmichael was born in 1867 in a tiny village in Northern Ireland, and we've taken her through the story until she's 63 years old. She had a habit of giving very picturesque names to the villages, or sometimes taking an Indian name and giving it a rather more picturesque translation than the word actually called for. And there was a town called Kalakadu, which literally meant scrubland. She named it Joyous City, with no idea of the irony that that name would someday hold. In 1926, she went with several others from Donavur to preach outside the temple, the Hindu temple, that is, in Kalakadu. They found a drama company setting up its stage, and she asked permission to tell the story of Jesus. To her amazement, they assented. And so she got up on the stage before the drama took place and told the old, old story. A week later, she was back again. There was no indication in Kalakadu that anybody wanted to hear the message that she had to give. And everything seemed to be closed to them. People knew Donavur. They knew the people who worked in Donavur. And in many of these strongly Hindu villages, there was absolutely no welcome whatsoever for them. In fact, no one would even rent them a house. But five years later, in 1931, there was a house for rent. She discovered that the reason it was for rent was because it was said to be haunted. A curse had fallen on it, and anyone who lived in that house would be cursed. She went ahead, rented it for a dispensary, and two of the Donavor women were assigned to live there and run a dispensary for the village people. On October 24, 1931, all was ready for these two women to go and live there, but Ama being the mother of the family, wanted to go and make sure that all was as she wanted it to be. 
That morning, Amy had been praying for guidance about money. And she prayed this, Do anything, Lord, that will fit me to serve Thee and to help my beloveds. When they got to Kalakadu that evening, the key to the house couldn't be found. So there was quite a long delay, and by the time they found the key, it was twilight. Amy made a trip to a palm-leaf outhouse, a new outhouse, of course, in the backyard. And for some reason, the coolies who had dug the hole had dug it just inside the door instead of at the back. She didn't see the hole. She fell across it. It was what they call a borehole, not wide at all, but she fell across it in such a way as to break her leg, dislocate her ankle, and twist her spine. The village people, of course, knew that this was indeed the curse of Allah. Dr. Pohl, Amy's personal physician at that time, a missionary from Ireland, was summoned. They both had confidence in the one who sets limits to the powers of darkness. Even though perhaps there is such a thing as a curse, and we know that there is no question about the existence of demons and of an enemy of our souls named Satan, his power is limited and they knew that the one who sets those limits was greater than he. And so they prayed for healing. She had to be taken in a truck over a very, very rugged road, and there was great pain. Her injuries were not really serious enough to have confined her to the room for the rest of her life, but in fact, that's what happened. She was confined to her room for the next 20 years, when she died at the age of 83. There were complications and various reasons why this was the case. But when I visited India in 1984, I was given the privilege of not only seeing her room, which was called the Room of Peace, but of actually using her writing table. Can you imagine the thrill it was to me to visit Donavur, to walk around its paths, visit its bungalows in the house of prayer, see the farms, and actually sit in the room of peace, which had belonged to Amy Carmichael. I felt as if I had been there before because I'd read all of her 40 books, most of them more than once, and I had pored over the pictures in the books that show the buildings and the gardens and the beautiful paths. It is a place of peace, the whole compound of Donavur. I remember walking into that room and feeling as though Amy Carmichael was still there. I heard Billy Graham say that he felt such a holy presence when he went into that room that he could do nothing but drop to his knees. Amy's description of her own room was this. It was not built to be a personal room at all, but a general home room with a wide veranda so that many girls could sleep here with me. A teakwood partition divides the room in two, a great convenience in long illness, and as you come in through the blue curtains near the door, you see on the right hand teakwood paneling, and on the left the bookcases to which the household come when they want biography, missionary and otherwise, and books of other kinds too. For all through my life, friends have sent me books. They are my great luxury, my mental change of air. Facing as you come in are three big windows looking out on greenness where a pair of blue kingfishers continually fish for minnows in large vessels set under the trees. When I visited that room, there was a mounted tiger head on the left wall of the entrance corridor, 
Then there was a picture of a snow-capped mountain painted by her friend Dr. Somervale, who had climbed Everest. Then there was a pendulum clock and something that certainly was never there in her lifetime, one of the rare photos of Amy Carmichael. She refused to allow people to photograph her, so the photos are few and far between. There was a little room off to the left where the precious log books were kept that I was allowed to look at, and then the door opening onto the veranda with its almost zoo-sized birdcage, which she used to fill with brightly colored birds, and she would allow them to fly out of the birdcage and around her room, much to the disgruntlement of her nurses. There was bougainvillea in shades of pink and purple and salmon and wonderfully scented white jasmine growing on the pillars of the veranda. The teakwood partition makes a dressing room which leads to the private bath, still with its primitive fixtures, a huge vessel for water and the little brass vessel that you use to pour water over your head. There was, of course, no running water. And over the mirror... In her private bathroom were these words, servant of all. There were texts all around the room. One very large one said, good and acceptable and perfect, words referring to the will of God from Romans 12, 2. Amy herself wrote in her little book, Rose from Briar, one of her 40 books, which is in print still today, rose from briar. She said, as I lay for two hours or more in the dark on the sand at Joyous City, this is referring, of course, to her accident, as I lay before help came, that which had to be endured seemed to give a sharpness to thought. I thought of men tormented not by accident, but on purpose in this same town and many another eastern town. I stood alongside the English judge who at that time openly fought torture in this district. I blessed God afresh for every man, whosoever he be, who fights that infernal thing in this or any land. And as one may look through a very small window upon a very great view, I saw in a new way a fragment of what we mean when we say Calvary. The ministry of doctors and nurses appeared to me more than ever before as a divine thing then. And I felt that our Lord Jesus, beholding them, must love them, and greatly desire to work together with them, laying his hand upon theirs as they work, in guidance and benediction. So, though through these months, acceptance has been a word of liberty and victory and peace to me, it has never meant acquiescence in illness, as though ill health were from him who delights to deck his priests with health. But it did mean contentment with the unexplained. Neither Job nor Paul ever knew, so far as we know, why prayer for relief was answered as it was. But I think that they must stand in awe and joy as they meet others in the heavenly country who were strengthened and comforted by their patience and valor and the record of their father's thoughts of peace toward them. There is no way of knowing how many thousands of people have been strengthened and comforted by Amy Carmichael's patience and valor. And this little book from which I've just read, Rose from Briar, is meant for the ill. And as she says in her introduction, it differs from most of the books for the ill in that it is written by someone who is ill.
Healing was almost taken for granted at first. They'd get their hopes up and then they would be dashed. Then cystitis would set in, then they would pray. Cables came from England and Australia telling Amy that they were praying for her. And it seemed that healing was given and then it seemed to be withdrawn. She wrote, the toad beneath the harrow knows exactly where each tooth point goes. The butterfly upon the road preaches contentment to that toad. I'm sure that there are some who are ill who have been listening to this program today. I hope that there have also been some nurses and doctors who've had the opportunity to hear the encouraging words that Amy Carmichael had for them. A sovereign God and a woman's pain. Part 21 in the extended Amy Carmichael series. Right now, let's hear from artist and speaker and friend of Elizabeth, Margaret Ashmore, as she talks about the first time she heard Elizabeth speak and about what Elizabeth pointed her to. I can't be sure when was the first time I heard Elizabeth speak, but I'm absolutely certain of my first impression. Uh, It was the profound simplicity of her words. Uh, They weren't oh, entangled in psychology. They, they weren't mired in the, the musings of intellect. They didn't dwell on feelings. They didn't meander around the theological landscape. Instead, she took us straight to the cross, that central place where real and lasting transformation takes place. One of her favorite poems by Amy Carmichael reads this way. From all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. She had no truck with anything or anyone that dimmed the cross in their writing or speaking or preaching. She, like the Apostle Paul, lived her whole life with this truth from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, listening to her was as clear as a sunbeam. Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop focusing on yourself. Go to the cross and die to yourself. From there comes resurrection power to truly change from the root up. Artist and speaker, Margaret Ashmore. Later on, Elizabeth will take a little bit of time and talk about how to come up with new programs. Right now, though, it's A Sovereign God and the Mystery of Pain, part 22 in this 24-part Amy Carmichael story. You've been able to learn more about Amy Do you know about the accident that nearly confined her to bed permanently? What was the last thing that Amy Carmichael wanted for herself? She had an accident when she was 63 years old, which incapacitated her for the rest of her life. She was almost bedridden. For part of the time, she was able to be up and around her room, but she was almost never outside of her room again. One of her prayers for years had been that the Lord would spare her ever becoming a burden to other people, that he would give her health as long as she was useful and then take her speedily. The last thing she ever wanted was to be served. 
She had come to India to be the servant of all, and now she was having to learn the lesson of being served by all. And she wrote this, I had so fully expected to be like the old ox in Mrs. Wiggs of the Cabbage Patch, who kept a going and a going till he died a standing up, and even then they had to push him over. But that I had been shedding my possessions, not accumulating them. But now she had to accept the luxury. How I loathe and fear luxury, she said. She had to have a proper bed instead of a mat on the tile floor, a room much larger and more beautiful than she thought was necessary, all manner of comforts and pleasures which flowed into the room from people who loved her. My only trouble is that I have had so much too much, she said, when the Son of Man had not where to lay his head. She had begun the writing of a book called Gold Cord, the story of the history of the Donovore Fellowship, in 1931, just before the accident. She finished that book in bed. As I scrutinized that book, I could find no clue whatsoever about the accident, no indication that she was now ill and in pain. But it was deeply revealing of the author's character and personality, as is every book that any author writes, I suppose. As it says in Matthew 12:34, a man's heart determines his speech. Amy Carmichael wrote very fast, by hand, on the table when she was able to be up and sit at her writing table. And she also had a little table that she could write on when she was in bed. She very seldom rewrote very much. These details interest me greatly, of course. I'm always interested in the method that, by which a writer writes. She managed to keep up with all sorts of writing in bed in addition to the books that she wrote. I think she wrote more than half of her 40 books during those last 20 years of illness. So surely that would point to the sovereignty of God in the mystery of her pain. God knew that if she had continued to be the mother of that large family, with all that that entailed, it would have been impossible for her to write the books which were to go around the world and last much longer than she did. And I, for one, am very grateful that God arranged it in such a way that she was able to write those books. In addition to books, she would write long letters for the Donovore family, some of them sort of official letters for the guidance of the leadership. She was still considered the leader of the Donovore Fellowship, and yet there were others who, of course, had taken the responsibility. And so she would spell out for them the reasons for the principles and the rules which had been laid down during the years previously. Then she still kept up what she called her scrap letters, letters to her family and friends back home in England and Ireland. And they were long letters. I've read hundreds of those. Then she wrote a Donovore letter, which was sent out to all who were interested in the work of Donovore. And she wrote for a magazine called The Life of Faith. And then she wrote for something called Dust of Gold, which is still in circulation. It is uh, what might be called the Donovore prayer letter, although it is labeled a private letter. Uh, 
those who are interested in knowing about the work of Donovor Fellowship and reading about it receive dust of gold. In addition to all of this rigorous discipline of writing, Amy Carmichael wrote literally hundreds of personal notes. I have seen hundreds of those, too. I'm sure she must have written thousands. Some of them were on the tiniest scraps of tissue paper. Nothing was ever wasted in Donovor. They ran the whole show on a, certainly on the thinnest shoestring that I've ever heard of. And to this day, they still do hand weaving. They hand husk the rice. They cook on primitive wood-fired stoves. They wash diapers by hand. The women who take care of the babies are the same women who actually wash the diapers and fix the formulas. So the Lord's money is certainly not wasted or spent casually by the people at Donovor. But she would write these tiny little personal notes to her children, her children including Indian women, adult women who were caring for those children, European workers from Scandinavian countries and Switzerland and Germany, England, Ireland, Scotland, Australia. She remembered birthdays. She remembered particular difficulties that a child might be facing, and she would write tiny little notes of encouragement to them. She wrote weekly letters to candidates who had been accepted for the Donover Fellowship, and she wrote dozens of letters to one particular candidate, the one whom I mentioned a few days ago as being engaged to a man who was already working in Donovor. And for various reasons, she was unable to come out to India as soon as she'd expected to do. And this is one of the notes that Amma wrote to this girl who was then 19. Dear, perhaps comrade-to-be, it began. There were expressions of warm welcome followed by straight-from-the-shoulder words about the matter of marriage before language learning. We do not find that we can lower our threshold. There was a rule, of course, that no one was to get married until they had learned the language. We've seen the weakness that follows making things easy and not soldierly. The battle to which we are committed is so terrific that only the tried and proven will stand. All others will give way and break at the moment of crisis. Soldiers don't ask for ease or expect it. Ill health then delayed this girl's sailing. Amy sympathized with her in the anguish of separation from her husband-to-be. Once in a while, she would actually send the girl a snapshot of Jack. And she wrote, B, darling, I love him more every month, and more desire him for you and you for him. He is one of the knightliest men I ever met. Every thought is knightly. He is one in whom a woman's love may safely rest, as a bird in its nest. She wrote of his progress in the language, Tamil, of his literary touch, and she closed the letter with, Now, with you in my arms, goodbye. Blessings on you, precious child, your own Amma, using the intimate term for mother in the Tamil language. She had not met this girl, remember, but she speaks of holding her in her arms. And in another letter to B, she wrote, To his strength, to his tenderness, I commit you both. You are warriors. And when did warriors ask for an easy time, or no wounds, or no heartbreaks? But he healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up the wounds. 
Goodbye, dear child, his trusted one, his tested one, his beloved one. Not only did Amy have to suffer physically, but she had to suffer the loss of one of her most trusted workers, the one in whom she had pinned her hopes for the future of the work, an Indian woman named Arulai, who was uniquely fitted to take over where Amy left off. She was one who could go anywhere and do anything, Amy had written. Physically, she was weak due to smallpox and various other illnesses. In 1935, she was ill again. Prayers went up, hopes for her healing went up, and then they plummeted. For four years, she was up and down, but by 1939, she was confined to bed in a room in sight of Amy's room. She was so near to me, not one minute's walk from this room, and yet I never saw her dear face after one day last October when she came to see me. I could have gone, but at first it was always that she was getting better and it would have made a fuss to go. Then, after March 10th, it would have been too hard for her and it would have meant parting. And we never parted. Arali died on May 24th, 1939. Amy called it her celestial birthday. The mystery of pain. Can we explain why God allows people to suffer in so many ways? Certainly not. But what we do know for sure is that he loves us with an everlasting love. He proved that love on the cross of Calvary. He asks us to trust him until that time when the mystery of pain and his sovereignty will be unfolded and explained. A sovereign God and the mystery of pain was our topic today here on part 22 of the 24-part series on the life of Amy Carmichael. Well, let's take about a minute and a half now and hear Elizabeth talk about how to come up with new programs. Events, you know, are God's bright messengers. God teaches us through events, through the things that happen in our lives, through the apportioned assignment which God has given to us. Now, one of the apportionments which I take from God's hand in these days is the necessity to prepare radio programs. And it never fails that when I'm facing the next taping session, I'm thinking, now, what shall I talk about? But, you know, as I spend time alone with the Lord in the mornings before breakfast, the Lord gives me so many things that I would like to talk about that there's absolutely no way that I can get them all in. I can't fit them all in. God pours out his superabundance of love and mercy and the Holy Spirit's teaching in such tremendous quantity and plenitude that I'm at a loss to know how to fit it in. I guess my biggest problem is not how shall I find something to talk about, but how shall I sift through the many things that I would like to talk about and narrow it down to those things that will fit into 11 and a half minutes? Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, our time is just about over. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you on that jogging routine, wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, hey, 
let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. elizabethelliot.org. Talks, devotionals, videos, other Gateway to Joy programs. And if you get a chance, leave a review for us wherever you've uh, been listening to this program. Until next time, may God remind you daily, yes, every day, that you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms.